Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Gist is sponsored by Acura, the presenting sponsor of the 2015 Sundance Film Festival. Check out the all-new Acura TLX at acura.com or test drive one for yourself at your local Acura dealer. And by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Get a free trial and 10% off your first purchase when you visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, January 26th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Over the weekend in Iowa, conservatives gathered, and there as de facto master of ceremonies was Steve King. He co-hosted the Freedom Summit. If freedom's in the name, you know the GOP is in the game. Democrats, they own the word fairness, right? If it's a fairness summit, that's a bunch of Democrats. Families, the families, that word, that's kind of up for grabs. It used to be trending much more Republican next to the word value. But now, if it's near the word work, that becomes kind of democratic. Anyway, we come back to Steve King. Stephen King, master of the ghoulish and the macabre. No, not, not that guy. Not the author, Stephen King. The representative from Iowa, Steve King. Okay, also you can make a case a little bit ghoulish with one word. That word is deportables. I'm going to give you a little background. Deportables is a word for a human person who Steve King deems, that the law looks at, as to be in America illegally. Backstory. Anna Zamora, born in Mexico, came to the U.S., by her parents. Her parents brought her here. She was like 0.5 years old. She has siblings who are Americans. And she sat next to Michelle Obama at the State of the Union as an example of what they call a dreamer, right? Some kid who didn't even know any better. And now because of Obama's new rules, she'll get to stay in America. But she's not a dreamer to Steve King. She is a deportable. That's the word he uses. You get the idea that if Steve King ever went on a Mexican vacation, he'd meet a lot of lovely pre-deportables. Some of them may even be post-deportable. You never know. It's just this way of stripping away the humanity that I hate. I don't mind the phrase illegal aliens, right? I like it better than undocumented workers. That seems to go around the issue too much. But I hate when people call people illegals. I sometimes change lanes without signaling. Does that make me an illegal? Yes, it does, I guess. And then they say, what part of illegal don't you understand? Like the definition thereof? (laughs) Your strict adherence to only the one crime that we're talking about? So Steve King, he is an undeportable man. That does not make him undeplorable. He's also a kingmaker. And he gets to decide which undeportable is electable and which undeportable is risible. We'll also talk about a fairly uncutting-edge company. Perhaps you heard of them, Microsoft. And in the spiel, Snow Thanks. But first, to that Steve King event, to Iowa, who kissed the ring of the king and who turned out to be a jester. 
Iowa. The state motto is, Our liberties we prize and our rights will maintain. State bird, American goldfinch. State flower, Rosa Arkansana. And the state interloper is a middle-aged white man in a business suit who has a track record of success in his home state. A message of optimism, the unshakable belief that there's nothing wrong with America that can't be solved by Americans. Ah! And by Americans, we mean the Americans of this party actually in this room. And by white man, sometimes we mean Sarah Palin or Hillary Clinton. Rahan Salam is the author of Grand New Party, How Republicans Can Win the Working Class and Save the American Dream. He's a columnist for Slate, executive editor of National Review. We talk Republicans. It seems like we talk Iowa a lot, too. Hello, Rahan. Hello, sir. Thanks for coming on. So what I really want to do with this discussion and when as we talk about the summit put together and co-hosted by Steve King, I'd like to talk about the ideas, the new ideas. Now, maybe you knew them, but for some of these candidates who are really introducing themselves and their ideas for the first time, and I think no one benefited as much from the forum as Scott Walker. Tell me what you thought of his performance and uh, therefore his chances. So Scott Walker is uh, the governor of Wisconsin. He has won three elections uh, because he was recalled uh, about halfway through his first term. And he's a guy that conservatives like and admire. But the thing is that people don't really know too much about him nationally outside of Wisconsin. They knew that he was involved in a fierce battle with public workers in his own state, but they don't have a sense of what he thinks about foreign policy. They don't have a sense of how charismatic he really is. Uh, And he's also been involved in a lot of fights, not just political fights, but legal battles in his own state. So uh, to some extent, this was his coming out party, an opportunity to show what he was capable of to a wider national conservative audience. And what did he do? What did he emphasize that maybe uh, took some uh, hearts and minds? Well, you know, he demonstrated that uh, the fight over public workers wasn't just some random thing. It's part of his larger uh, idea about what it means to govern. You've got to be big and bold. And I govern a politically divided state, and I've actually gotten things done. We're in a politically divided country, and I can get things done as president, too. Who else among the potential candidates or candidates who spoke impressed you in one way or the other? Uh, You know, I think Chris Christie did a solid, creditable job. Uh, He was trying to demonstrate to a skeptical, very conservative audience, a very Christian conservative audience, that he wasn't just a moderate Northeastern squish, and I think he did a a solid job. Ben Carson is just a very impressive, articulate guy. He's one of these guys who, you know, again, has never been in political office before. There are a lot of doubts about him on that front, but he might be winning the primary to determine who's going to be that kind of articulate outsider, who's going to be uh, someone who's going to attract a lot of attention and a lot of donors, and and maybe in the early primaries, a decent number of voters. And of course, there are the people who are missing, who, uh, you know, were missing for a reason. They're kind of making a statement by not showing up for this Christian conservative audience, particularly Jeb Bush, who was actually in San Francisco giving a speech to donors there. Jeb Bush, Mitt Romney, not there. But as you say, Chris Christie was. Now, I think politically they uh, occupy similar niches, moderate establishment. But is the big difference that Christie's not that establishment in terms of money? Like he has to do these things because he doesn't have the money raising machine that a Jeb or a Mitt does? I think that it's more like he's saying, look, you know, hey, I'm actually here. I'm making the gesture. I'm probably not going to win Iowa caucus Republicans, but, you know, I'm here to kind of, uh, you know, try to demonstrate that I'm really on your side. It's actually kind of a smart thing to do because you could say that, hey, Jeb Bush is showing contempt by not showing up and talking to you guys. You might not like me, but at least I'm giving you the respect I think you deserve. 
Well, speaking of Jeb Bush and contempt or possible contempt, you know, he talked about the GOP primaries, not just this one caucus. And I think he said it to Gerald Seib of the Wall Street Journal that the 2016 nominee has to be willing to lose the primary to win the general. Okay, literally, that can't happen. I think what it was taken to mean is that the Republican primary voter is much more conservative than the general voter, and therefore, things that are said or positions that are taken in the primary can hurt you. Some examples of that, like Mitt Romney talking about self-deportation, sort of pushed there because of the immigration stances of the other people on the stage last time. But then there are plenty of examples that aren't like that, you know, like George W. Bush not really tacking to the middle uh, to beat John McCain in primaries. What do you think of Jeb Bush's statement? I think that there are a lot of Republican voters who feel as though, you know, they were desperately casting about searching for a candidate who is really compelling. And I think that someone who offers a message that's about, you know, helping working and middle income families, that's about growth, that's about, you know, kind of uniting the country. I think that that could appeal to Republican primary voters. I think they're just dealing with what they've got. So are there any, as a conservative stalwart yourself, are there any stances that the conservative or that the primary base takes that frustrate you, that forces candidates into bad positions or just takes up too much time with nonsense, in your opinion? Yeah, I'd say, for example, uh, among Republican primary voters, among some movement conservatives, there's enthusiasm for things like the gold standard. Uh, you've got people who want to relitigate the Great Depression. Uh, you know, you have a lot of talk about how, you know, we're one step away from becoming Greece. Uh, just a lot of things like that about economic policy in particular, they just don't square with reality. There are positions that conservatives took, uh, you know, post-2008 that after 2008, Republicans really fixated on debt levels and the deficit. This was, you know, their core talking point, when in fact unemployment was the much, much bigger issue in talking about how to actually solve that problem. I think that Republican primary voters tend to latch on to some of these kind of symbolic economic issues, and I think that that's a big problem. And when you have candidates catering to that, uh, they wind up ignoring problems that the wider electorate cares about. That's something that I regret. And the last thing I want to ask about is Sarah Palin, not a serious candidate. I possibly not a serious person, but I did see a lot of social media saying that she gave a bad speech. And I looked at the speech and it seemed like a Sarah Palin speech. Does she ever really give a good or bad speech? Uh, Did this speech in any way stand out as something that's different from the overall Sarah Palin oeuvre to you? When you get to know someone really well, you recognize all of their tics, uh, all of their habits. So things that once seem really novel and charming uh, somehow become shopworn. I think that's basically it. I think that early in her you know, career on the national stage, I think Sarah Palin had you know, flashes of wit and brilliance even. And I think that over time, she's gotten a little looser. Uh, and some of the things that once seemed really fresh and new uh, seem something other than that. So I think that that's really it. She's just, you know, she's worn out her welcome. Raihan Salon, going rogue with us. Actually, sticking to script, adding insight. Thank you so much, Raihan. Thank you. The Gist is brought to you by Acura, the presenting sponsor of the 2015 Sundance Film Festival. Acura understands the power of performance, how every moment should be infused with emotion, and every moment should evoke a thrill. A great performance is what Acura wants drivers to experience every time they get behind the wheel, which is why Acura is a proud official presenting sponsor of the Sundance Film Festival. Check out the all-new Acura TLX at Acura.com or test drive one for yourself at your local Acura dealer. Change is difficult, and for a company like Microsoft, it's basically paralyzing. In fact, 
They skip over whole numbers when they change operating systems. Now the Microsoft, the Internet Explorer, you know it. It's somewhere on your computer in the background, never having been clicked for years. And Lily Hay Newman, who writes about technology for Slate, in fact, she's the Future Tense blogger, says it is time to kill off Internet Explorer. And we actually, the only reason we're even talking is because I needed essentially a head prop as I was doing a photo shoot. And you're going to hear the clicking during the interview that I do with Lily. But I got to talking and of course she's very smart and of course it's very interesting. So bear with the noise in the background. It's really not overpowering. You're just going to wonder what the hell it is. So I wanted to explain that as we talk about Microsoft. What's up with that? As we say around the office, hey, Newman. (laughs) Hello, Newman. Hey, Lily. Hey, yep. Newman. Get she it is, all the time. And we're going to talk about the new Microsoft Windows 10, which comes on the heel, logically enough, of Windows 8. Right. What, what no happened to Windows 9? Why? They say that 10 is just a better number. It feels it is. good. Is I mean, did the uh, Beatles song Revolution Number 9 have anything to do with their decision? It is a weird song. It's an off-putting yeah. song. Yeah. Some say the worst Beatles song. Probably, you know, honestly, I I think it was a factor. I I think we can say that. (laughs) Have they been getting mostly derided for skipping the nine or is that seen as really forward looking within the tech community? So now everyone's used to it because this got announced a little while ago. Yeah. At the time that Back in, everyone... It, it, got, it got announced last year, which by their coding <laughs> would be 2013. <laughs> um, no, no, no. Windows 10 just got announced yeah. officially. But, but they you said know, they you were know it's it. coming yeah. and you start to see leaked uh, product numbers and things like that. And they figured out, you know, tech journalists and, you know, rumor mills figured out that uh, it was going to be called Windows 10 instead of nine, and then everyone was pissed. Yeah. <laughs> everyone was pissed. Yeah, I would say that. <laughs> but is this one of those things where if Microsoft does it, it must be stupid? Like, if Google had a similar thing, <laughs> would it be as widely derided? Well, I think it's both. I think if Microsoft does something, people are looking to make fun of it, but also that's a really dumb thing to do. That is, like, yeah, I right. Think every, this is I why. think any company would be made fun of for that. This because as I was saying the other day to a colleague, it's not like... They now are calling it, you know, Windows Vista. You know, they've had other nomenclature in the past. or They're not calling it, you know, Windows Future or something. They're calling it 10, which usually comes after 9, but now it's going to come after 8. So that's like a really specific mistake, you know, or like problem. It's not like a... Right. What is Microsoft good at anymore? Because you have this whole article just, you know, tearing apart the Internet Explorer, Mm -hmm. which I guess you know, still exists, and I'll use it as a tertiary browser Mm -hmm. for... There was one thing I used to have to open that could only open an Internet Explorer, and I think it was my timesheet program, and so I hated it a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what's what's Microsoft actually good at? So Microsoft is still huge, especially in enterprise. They still do a lot of productivity software like Microsoft Word. Yeah. They also provide cloud services that I think are pretty big in enterprise. Good at anything they've invented in the last, like, 10 years. The question is being framed in from a place of already assuming that people don't like Microsoft. Uh-huh. Like, a lot of people do like Microsoft. Lots of people are have Windows wrong? laptops. Are they insane? <laughs> Microsoft has definitely made weird choices, mm-hmm. of, including, like, Internet Explorer is a perfect example. With Internet Explorer 6, which was 
probably the most popular browser ever. It had 95% market share. Like that's completely insane. What yeah. has what in any category ever has that? Um, Q-tips. Kleenex, Q-tips. right? That's like yeah, it. Vaseline. Um, and the, the off-brand <laughs> petroleum jellies are not nearly. They're kind of sketchy looking, right? Yeah, they, you know, it's not even that they're bad. They just don't have that Vaseline yeah, smell. Yeah, they're like yellow. So they were so excited that they had this huge hit that they just didn't update it at all for six years, I think, or five. And that's a weird amount of time, right? That's not mm-hmm. a year or two years, right? So that in tech, that's weird to not update, not add new features, not you know be following the latest of what's mm-hmm. going on and just have this sort of stalwart product. So then they started losing users and then they eventually released another version and a few more, but they didn't really hit like a modern browser until m- multiple iterations later. And at that point, I had the reputation that it now has of being kind of old school and yeah. weird and stodgy. So they've been playing catch up for years. The right. uh, game and so passed that, them by. That's true on a lot of fronts. Like, I mean, what we saw with Windows XP, this is just one of my favorite things ever, is that Windows XP came out in 2001, and then everyone just used it forever. And, you know, Vista was bad. They had a, you know, Microsoft had a bunch of releases that were really mediocre, not as solid as XP, so people just didn't upgrade. And then when they tried to kill XP last year... I mean, they they actually had to work on it for like three years to get people to stop using XP. And right before the end of support for XP last year, it was like some crazy percentage of ATMs were still running XP. And it was about to not have any security support at all. So it's just like, guys, you know, the forward thinking vision, you know, here was not intact. Like, So what is the argument now? Why is Internet Explorer over? Now Internet Explorer is over because they have a new browser that they're launching called Mm -hmm. Project Spartan. That's still a code name, I think. I don't think they've named it. It looks good, you know, meaning normal. It looks like a normal browser that you would use, which is great because the browsers they used to offer weren't. Do companies make a lot of money on the browsers? How do you monetize a browser? One thing that I think is relevant to that is the search default search in Firefox. Uh That's a story that's been ongoing lately. You know, one way to monetize your browser is to have a contract with a search engine that they're going to be the default search and they pay for that privilege. Who is the... uh, So it was Google. Yeah. But now it's Yahoo. That's what happened. Right. I noticed that. Mm -hmm. That's why when I search for Afghanistan, I get a lot of hits about rugs instead of countries. Mm -hmm. Not throwing... Yahoo under the bus, but I am. So, I mean, like you Yahoo can, that, and Internet Explorer are more of a natural team <laughs> that they're like sixth or seventh they, best well, in their Well, Microsoft fields. and Yahoo are both older tech companies, yeah, you know, yeah. old internet companies. Yeah, so I, default is not to say that you can't change it. It's just the one that shows up by default. Right. So that's one way. Uh, advertising, obviously, is another big way. Yeah, I mean, with a company like Google... It's monetized as part of a broader scheme of how they're monetizing all their products. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's specifically just, what are we going to do about Chrome? Because it's in a broader context. Lily Hay Newman writes about tech. She is the future tense blogger for Slate. Thank you, Lily. Thanks for having me.
This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. They recently launched the latest version of their platform. It's called Squarespace 7. Unlike Microsoft, they actually count in order. They don't skip numbers just to seem cool or to cover up their past uncoolness because they've always been cool. They include this new uh, platform, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, new templates, an incredible feature called Cover Pages. We encourage you to try out the new Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code the gist at checkout for 10% off Squarespace start here go anywhere and now the spiel snow maxessive there's little margin in it for me to be the one guy who says yeah I don't think the snow will be that bad because if I'm right maybe you'll remember that Maybe you'll give me credit next time, but I don't think that's how memory works. The next time that a possible snowtastrophe bears down on us, will people really say, let's check in with that even-keeled podcaster who is accurate to within two to four inches? No! People will say, we gotta listen to these guys again! Starting tomorrow morning into tomorrow afternoon, it is going to be impossible to travel. Impossible. An unprecedented blizzard, as powerful a storm as we have seen make its way across the Ohio Valley in many, many years. It's the kind of storm that is going to shut down travel and daily activities. So this literally could be one of the top two or three largest storms in the history of the city. There's plenty of salt. The trucks are ready. But the real question is, will any of this really be enough? And among the people you heard there was the could be possible, likely top guy in New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio. There was the front page of the New York Post, New York City bracing for up to three feet of snow. Time magazine said Northeast residents prepare for crippling winter weather with forecasts predicting more than two feet of snow. Yeah, three feet. I heard about three feet in the post. That is more than two feet. You should go with that. Actually, checking the latest National Weather Service probabilistic winter precipitation guidance. Oh, I love the probabilistic winter precipitation guidance. Great tool. Show, showing me that New York City will probably get 12 feet. That's 50-50. Maybe 18 inches, up to 18 inches. That's looking like 30-40%. So we'll get a foot, foot and a half of snow. It's very inconvenient. But the National Weather Service earlier had used the phrase crippling and potentially historic. Crippling and potentially historic. If you cast Catherine Keener in that movie, it could be a Nicole Holofcener flick. Huh? Deep dive in the film. Unlike most emergencies or looming emergencies where mayors and governors usually urge calm or quarantine a redheaded nurse, but usually they do urge calm. Mayors go nutso for storms in the same way that presidents use the military. In fact, it's very similar. Declare a state of emergency. You have fleets at your command. The fleets may be military convoys. The fleets may be snowplows. You're spreading democracy. You're spreading salt. The mayor should be known as the commander-in-chief of salt spreaders. He should convene the joint chiefs of shovels. I'm still, still, with all this, all this mockery, I'm still not prepared to flat out say this snowstorm is overblown. Is it cause I want to avoid a pun? No, I think you know me. And I do in my gut think that it will be less than crippling. Well, my gut and the probabilistic models. And I say that because, like every other event that I've witnessed through the media, there are great incentives for hype. There's ratings, selling papers, but also, especially with these weather stories, the cost of being wrong on the it's-so-scary side seems a lot less than the cost of being seen as underprepared for calamity. So governors and mayors can only lose by seeming underprepared, overprepare, And, like, if nothing happens, 
There are many outs, chief among them. Hey, nothing happens. See, the benefit of preparation. But all the dire warnings, actually, they do have costs. There's the run on groceries, stress, worry, and the fact that people tune out the next time. So we say that it's this potentially historic storm, potentially historic. The phrase, not quite a contradiction, but there is an abrupt shift that's never acknowledged from the future to the past. The present is never acknowledged in the phrase potentially historic. Potentially means a thing that could happen. Historic means a thing that did happen. So one day we might look back on this as a thing that happened. That is in fact how history works. Before it's history, it's potential. And after it's potential, it's history potentially historic. Or put another way, I predict that we will look back at our forethought and say how well we anticipated the retroactive foresightedness our precautions have forestalled. And that's it for today's show, if not tomorrow's snow. Just producer Andrea Salenzi will one day have been seen as ahead of her time. Our intern, Claire Tennisketter, is a space-aged jet setter. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, without any premeditation at all will mark territory through urinating, defecating, and scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. Andy Bauer, is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has a retroactive prescience. You can go to iTunes. Please do. And when you go there, leave us a review. Go to slate.com slash just email to sign up for our email. Download the app Yo and sign up for podcast. We'll give you the show. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. If you heard our show on Friday, we're doing a storytelling competition. I'm going to give you the number now. The parameters are there. I'm not going to go through it. Listen to Friday's show. Interview with Matthew Dix. It's excellent. The number to call is 304-607-GIST. 304-607-GIST. I'm not going to spell it out. You spell it out. Looked at one way. If you're not the lead dog, the view never changes. On the other hand, the dog up front is the only one without hindsight. But you know, if you think about it that way, you'll be visually imprisoned in a dog butt jail, if you will. It's better than bail jail. It's worse than just jail. Just jail is you can never listen to the gist, or maybe depending on your predilections, you can only listen to the gist <laughs> forever. Why do I mention this? Because now it's Monday, and Monday means it's a new They Might Be Giant song. Dial a song can be called starting tomorrow. The number is 844-387-6962. But today's song is here. It's now. It's They Might Be Giants taking you to music jail, parts one and two. 